Well, hey, uh, we are in the Sermon on the Mount, so you're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and as you're getting there, let me just say this. If you've ever heard me preach, say, more than once or twice, um, you know that uh, I am kind of hung up on sports analogies and sports stories, and that's kind of only thing I know anything about, and so that's the thing I usually talk about. I can't help it. I've been uh, involved in sports since I was in the womb, and uh, it's what I know, and I've loved sports as long as I can remember, but I have another lifelong interest that a lot of you probably are not even aware of for me, um, and that is I'm a language nerd. I'm very much into language. I have been since I was a youth. Uh, when, uh, when the science and math kids were having fun with quadratic equations and learning the periodic table, uh, and all I know is that it's some sort of table. That's as much as I know about that. But I was uh, reading Shakespeare's sonnets and writing my own bad poetry and Um, practicing my Spanish and uh, writing speeches and doing all that. And one thing I learned early on from my illustrative career as a great writer is that every essay or speech needs a thesis statement, right? And, And any good teacher will tell you the thesis statement has to go right up front. You need to be able to find it in the first paragraph or two. You need to be able to know what is this all about before you dig in and really start trying to understand. Um, it's the basis of any good uh, speech, any good book, any good essay or debate or anything like that. And so um, that's the way Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount. We've been, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount now for several weeks, and uh, we are only 20 verses into it. Um, but we are still at the beginning of the sermon, so remember that. We've been doing this now for several weeks. Jesus was only speaking for a short time when he came to his thesis statement, which is uh, found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. We looked at it last week, and I'm convinced this is really the thesis statement of the whole sermon, and it's found in Matthew 5, 20. Here's what it says. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what the sermon is about. The whole Sermon on the Mount is trying to drive home this point that the idea of righteousness that you have maybe seen in religious leaders or had this idea of what it's supposed to look like by this sort of outward behavior, your idea of righteousness is faulty, Jesus is saying. And he says, I want to introduce to you a whole new way of thinking about how to be a person who's in relationship with God. I want you to have a whole new way of thinking about how to relate to him, how to please him, how to honor him, how to live a life that he blesses. And so he says, you're going to have to have a righteousness, righteous behavior that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and everybody's head drops, and they say, well, there's no point. There's no way I could be as religious as those guys. 
There's no way I could follow all the rules that they tell me I have to follow. There's no way I can keep up. I mean, the law is hard enough, but all of these rabbinical writings over hundreds and thousands of years that say I have to behave like this and I can't do that and if I do this, I must do that and don't go over here and you have to do this and I can't even keep up with it, let alone try to keep it. And you can only imagine that when Jesus says you have to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, that people at that point are either going to make a decision to say, this guy's full of it and I'm not gonna listen to him, or they're going to feel uh, dejected, discouraged, somewhat hopeless. And so he sets them up with this thesis statement and he goes from there. See, the scribes and the Pharisees had made it their life's work to twist the law of God, to, to make it way more detailed than it needed to be, to, to pretend that their own ideas were really the ideas that God communicated when he gave the law. And, um, and it got to the point where it was really hard to tell where the law of God ended and the traditions of the rabbis began and it all began to be one thing in everybody's mind. And, and now the traditions of the rabbis were the things that were the most important thing. So the rabbis had over the centuries been trying to get them to understand, okay, God says to live like this. Well, here's some things you should do to live like that. Pretty soon, those suggested applications became the law itself in their minds. And now people are caught up trying to do all the things that all the rabbis had said, and they are quite frankly tired. They're frustrated. They are sick and tired of trying to keep up their own righteousness. And I know some of us can relate to that. We, we can relate to this idea that we're always running and always trying and feeling like we're falling short and no matter what, I just can't do it. I just can't be righteous enough. I just can't be godly enough. I keep trying, but I'm failing. I keep falling in the same traps. I keep giving in to the same temptations. I am struggling here and after a while, when you struggle like that for long enough, there comes a point you just wanna throw your hands in the air and go, maybe this just isn't for me. Maybe I just have to give up and realize I'm never gonna be pleasing to God. I've met so many people who are in that condition, who are in that place where they're like, yeah, I, I used to be a Christian, but after a while, it was just so weighty for me that I just sort of went a different direction. Jesus is addressing that very same issue in the Jews, and he's saying there is a different kind of righteousness than you know anything about. In fact, even toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, the rabbis were still trying to pin him down on these legal questions, these issues of the rabbinical teachings and the laws. Take your Bibles and go to um, Matthew chapter 22. We're gonna spend a lot of time in Matthew in various places today. Matthew chapter 22, we're gonna pick it up in verse 34. Now this is very near the time of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. This is really some, some of the last things that he interacted uh, with the Pharisees about. And he's been telling stories and parables and trying to get them to understand. Last week we talked about uh, the parable of the landowner and Jesus had just finished talking about the parable of the landowner and here's what ended up happening. Matthew 22 and verse 34. Uh, maybe I should turn the page. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. 34. 
But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now look at this, verse 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Remember last week we talked about the fact that Jesus said, listen, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And now when they come to him with these legal questions, hey, which of our 10,000 rules is the most important one to follow? Which thing in the law, which of those statements of old, which of those things should we make sure is at the top of our minds at all times? Jesus goes, you know what? Let me just sum up the whole thing for you. You wanna know what the whole teaching of scripture tells us? It tells us love God. God with every fiber of your being and love people. The whole law and the prophets is bound up in that statement, says Jesus. Everything in the training and the tradition of the Jewish religious leaders led them to believe that everything was about their religious traditions. It was about their laws. But Jesus comes along with an entirely different message at this point and a whole new way to understand God's plan for our lives. So he makes this thesis statement in Matthew 5.20. And by the way, as I was saying before, it's taken us six weeks to get to um, chapter or verse 20 of chapter 5 and I blame you guys for not listening fast enough <laughs> but it's taken us six weeks to get there but I actually took my Bible this week and read it out loud at the kind of a cadence I would read it at if I was preaching it and it took me one minute and 41 seconds to get to verse 20 Jesus is less than two minutes into his sermon when he gives this thesis statement, okay? So he's doing exactly what our English teachers taught us to do. Put it up front, make it prominent, make it clear what it is that you're gonna be talking about. And Jesus wants to make it clear that he is not contrasting his message against the law and the prophets. He says, I haven't come to do that. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. In fact, if anyone ever tries to take away anything that the law and the prophets teaches, then they'll be accursed. He says, what I've come to do is fulfill it. So I'm not contrasting, says Jesus, my message against the law and the prophets. I am gonna contrast my message against the teachings of the rabbis against the traditions of men. That's what I'm here to help you to understand. And we have to understand that if we're to have any hope of understanding where Jesus is going with the rest of this sermon. So he made his point. And now he's gonna expand on it. He's gonna try to illustrate it. And, and the first of those illustrations is found in Matthew 5, verses 20 and 21. Uh, verses 21 and 22, excuse me. Verse 21 You have heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now let me just take a second and try to clarify. 
In verse 22, he gives us these three things. It's, he says, if you're angry with your brother, if you call him a good for nothing, I don't know what your translation says. Mine says good for nothing. Um, and, and the last one says, if you say you fool. These are, these are um, colloquialisms. And they don't translate so well into English, right? So the point he's making here is he's saying, listen, um, if your anger toward your brother leads you to a place where you attack him, where you verbally assault him, where you're abusive toward him even in your speech, then you are doubly guilty, okay? That's what he's saying. And this is the introduction of a phrase that he is going to repeat again and again and again throughout this chapter. Verses 21 and 22, you have heard that the ancients were told, but I say to you, verse 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, verse 31 and 32, it was said, but I say to you, verse 33 and 34, again, you have heard the ancients were told, but I say to you, verse 38 and 39, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, verses 43 and 44, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So all of these things they have heard that it was said are these extrapolations of the Jewish teachers over the time. He gives, in just a few verses, six examples here of the fact that the rabbis compromised God's law and missed the point of the whole thing. One of my goals every time I stand up to preach is I hope that when you leave, you will have a point in mind. That you don't just go, well, that was interesting. He told a story about this and made a joke about that and this was kind of interesting and I learned a lesson about this. But when you walk away, you would go, oh, I understand the point of the passage. Jesus is trying to make a point here and what he's saying to them is, you guys have missed the point of the law. You've missed the whole point. And so what I'm gonna try to do is come at it from a bunch of different angles so that you will get the point. We know what the law says. You shall not murder. It's the sixth commandment. Most of us have heard that before. But in teaching this principle to the people, the rabbis of old had gone about it completely the wrong way. For example, they made all kinds of distinctions about different types of killings and, and what kind of punishment should be connected to each of those types of killings. There, there could be a killing that takes place in war. There could be a, a killing that is an accident, sort of a manslaughter kind of a situation. There could be executions of criminals and et cetera, et cetera. And they taught all kinds of rules related to all of that but they never thought to take the commandment, thou shalt not commit murder, and move backwards with it and explain the motivating factors. They never thought to go to the source of the murder, which is unrighteous anger that leads to bitterness and hatred and rage. And it's the anger and the bitterness and the hatred and the rage that is the source of the murderous activities. If we can learn to deal with the source of the crimes, then the crimes will never be committed in the first place, Jesus is saying. 
despite all their education, despite, these are, these are the high-ranking, highly educated priests of Israel, despite all of their piety, the Jewish teachers of the law had somehow managed to miss the point of the whole thing for thousands of years. And the point is this, it's what's on the inside that counts. He, Jesus get, said this to them, he said, you know, you guys, you wash the outside of the cup to make sure it looks pristine, but the inside of the cup is filthy and you do nothing about that. They, they just had this idea that everything was outward and Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 it's not what's on the outside that counts, it's what's on the inside because if what's on the inside is transformed, then what's on the outside will reflect what's on the inside. He explained it succinctly. This, this challenge that everyone has tried to figure out for thousands of years, psychiatrists and psychologists and doctors and counselors and social workers and religious leaders and political leaders trying to figure this out for years and Jesus just comes out and basically says this, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. If we just understand that, then we'll realize the way we must address the problems is to address the heart. And that seemed to be going over everybody's head. Jesus makes this point. When the Pharisees got upset because some of Jesus' disciples were eating before they went through a ceremonial washing process, they got all bent out of shape. They came to Jesus and they're like, why do you hang out with these ragamuffins? That's a... Hebrew term. <laughs> why, why do you hang out with these guys? They, they don't even wash their hands before they eat. Guys, this was not because there wasn't enough Purell in the room and there was all of that kind of stuff. This was a ceremonial thing. If you didn't go through this special cleansing process, it had nothing to do with removing dirt or germs from your hands. It had to go with this reminder that uh, we must be cleansed in order to be considered ceremonially clean. And they came to Jesus and they said, these guys don't do it. They just dig in and start eating. And what's up with that? And Jesus tries to explain this principle then. Matthew chapter 15. Go there with me. Matthew 15, beginning in verse 17. Here's Jesus' response. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. He says, it's what's in the heart that leads to these problems. And what do we do? We get all upset and concerned about these actions and these activities, and we pay no attention to what's causing the problem, which is the heart. And I'm gonna try really hard not to go off on a tangent here, because man, does this apply to our culture today. We, we, we have a whole legal system that's just about trying to control people's bad behaviors through more laws or different kinds of punishments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but we find that people still behave badly because all we're doing is dealing with the symptoms and we're not dealing with the heart. If you are having terrible headaches and 
you go to the doctor and you're like, man, for like eight days, I can't get rid of this headache. It's a terrible headache. I just don't know what to do. And the doctor looks at you and he says, okay, here's some morphine. Take this and your headache will feel better. And you take the morphine and the pain goes away. Are you healed? Not if you have a brain tumor. If the brain tumor is causing the problem, you better have brain surgery, right? And, and we seem to miss that issue when it comes to our human behavior, our own behavior, the, the, the criminal justice system in our society, the, the behavior of our children that we're trying to raise. And, and we think, well, if I could just put these outward controls, I can make sure that they don't do anything bad. Guess what? You could take away guns and people will still kill people. You could take away knives and people will still kill people. You could take away rocks and people will still kill people. You can find ways to just minimize all of those issues and yet people have a heart problem. That's the problem. And, and Jesus recognizes this and he goes, our whole religious system as Jews has been missing this for centuries. And that's the problem. Too many people are trying to solve man's problems with an outside-in approach. We think it's the byproduct of someone's education or, or someone's upbringing or someone's economic status or the, 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 the way your parents changed your diapers when you were a kid or whatever. Something is causing me to be this way. We think if we can just control someone's bad behavior then we can make him a good person. But that's ridiculous. The problem is on the inside. Last year, we, we did this overview of the life of King David, and, and many of you will remember that King David, with all of his wonderful accomplishments, also had some horrible moments in his life where sin just characterized what was happening with him. And you'll remember, he goes up on the rooftop, he looks across at the neighbor's house, in through the window, sees a woman taking a bath, becomes filled with lust, takes her to his home, has sex with her, impregnates her, and then has her husband put to death when he won't help in the cover-up. And he's now guilty of adultery and murder as the king of Israel. What was the cause of all this? I know, the cause is that Bathsheba was not being careful enough. She was bathing right there with an open window. I know, the cause was that David had a bad upbringing and he had seen his dad behave badly and that's why he behaved badly. Oh, I know, um, it was actually her husband's fault because David brought him home and said, hey, why don't you go enjoy your wife? And he said, no, I'm not gonna do that and he wouldn't do it. Uh, or was the real problem the condition of David's heart? And what was the best solution? Maybe we should throw him in jail. Maybe, um, you know, if we just put some curtains in in the bathroom at Bathsheba's house, maybe that will take care of the issue. Maybe, um, maybe I should marry her to cover up the sin, which is what he tried to do. Is that a solution? Once the Lord convicted David of his sin, he knew immediately what the only solution was. In Psalm chapter 51, verse 10, David, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, sits down and writes these words, create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a steadfast spirit within me. James explains this same phenomenon. Go to the New Testament, book of James, back in the New Testament. It's right after Hebrews. Go to James chapter one. James actually talks about this in multiple places, but we're gonna look at chapter one, verses 13 to 15. Here's what James has to say about us dealing with temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. You should underline those words, his own. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. David says the problem is not the temptations that are out there. Listen, we live in a broken world, guys. You don't need me to tell you about this. There's all kinds of ways for us to stumble and fall. There are all kinds of temptations out there. There are all kinds of things that God says, hey, this is not for you, and yet we lust after those things anyway. And he says the problem is not those things. The problem is in my heart. It all begins with my own heart's desire that when I act on brings about sin and sin brings about death, which is the whole reason Jesus had to come. Hatred and anger and, and, and malice is found in the human heart. And that's what leads to murder. As horrible as it is, Murder is not the real problem. It is a symptom of the real problem. The problem is the wickedness that is bound up in the human heart. And I realize that's not popular to talk about. I realize that a whole lot of people get very offended when you start saying, hey, everybody's not just fine. But the truth of the matter is that the Bible teaches us from Genesis to Revelation and our own experience teaches us this as well, that we have a heart problem, that we are prone to sin and that it really comes down to us. Mankind is plagued with a curse. The curse is that we naturally sin. We naturally desire the things that God does not desire for us. We naturally get ourselves into these messes. And Jesus comes along and supernaturally defeats sin and death on our behalf so we can have new life in him. That's the point. Hatred, anger, and malice is bound up in our hearts. One of the first sins ever recorded is the sin of murder. Here we're gonna go back to our Old Testament all the way to Genesis chapter four. I want you to see this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. Genesis chapter four, and we're gonna look at this story beginning in verse three. Now, now the fall has happened. Adam and Eve have already rebelled against God. Um, they now have two sons, Cain and Abel, and we hear a little bit about what happens with Cain and Abel. Murder is one of the first sins ever recorded. Verse three, Genesis, uh, Genesis four. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. He was a farmer. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. He's a shepherd. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel for his, and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now we are not told why God accepted Abel's offering but didn't accept Cain's offering. We're not given anything about that. There's been all kinds of speculation about that. The rest of scripture basically teaches us that you can bring God any kind of gift but what he's interested in is your heart, right? So apparently there's something there that's not worshipful or, or, or not um, genuinely um, uh, submissive in Cain's offering. We don't know. But we do know that when God accepted Abel's offering and was unimpressed with Cain's offering, it says in verse five, Cain became very what? Angry. Angry. And his countenance fell. That's not a phrase we use very much anymore. It means he looked sad. You could read it on his face. He was upset. Verse six, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. There's murder. It's the first record of any murder that we have. A man murders his own brother. Why? Because he's mad at God, and he murders his own brother. The interesting thing here is that God tried to stop it before it happened. God went to Cain and said, hey, I see the anger in your heart. I can tell you're upset. I can see that you're tempted to do something about this. Listen, don't do what you're thinking of doing. Instead, do the right thing. The problem is your anger and it's, it's rising up in you and it's gonna overflow and God is trying to tell him, listen, you've got to deal with it on the heart level. Don't do what you're thinking of doing. And yet he did. And so we have murder. I love the fact that the very first murder that we have recorded tells us what the source of the murder was. He became angry. Not all anger is sinful. In Ephesians 4, it says, be angry and yet do not sin. It is possible to experience the emotion of anger and not respond sinfully. It's not about whether you feel anger. It's about how you respond to that, right? But either way, we have to understand it begins on the inside. That temptation to respond sinfully comes from the anger that is on the inside. This is why um, men who abuse their wives always apologize afterwards in tears and they swear that it's never gonna happen again. And I think that in many cases, they're 100% sincere in that moment. But then they get mad again and the cycle is repeated. Why? It's not that, they're, that they don't mean I'm gonna try to do better. It's that this anger, this rage, this hatred, this abusive nature boils up within people and then they act on it. That guy does not need an anger management class at the core. What that guy needs is a new heart. He needs a spiritual awakening. He needs 
needs to be transformed from the inside out because we don't begin to live in a way that is pleasing to God until we have a heart that is pleasing to God. It begins on the inside. That's why Jesus never talks about rehabilitation. He said you must be born again. That's a whole new life. That's not a rehabilitation. That's not a try a little bit harder. That's not a pull yourself up by the bootstraps and fix it. That's not a read a self-help book and maybe you'll do better. He says you need a new heart. You must be born again. Jesus knew that the only lasting change in a person comes when the heart changes and only God can give us a new heart. Now, let me be clear because this can be a confusing passage back in Matthew 5. When Jesus says that um, the problem is not the murder, it's the anger, he's not equating murder and anger. He's not saying, hey, if you're angry, you might as well just go ahead and kill the guy. Because after all, it's the same thing. That's not what he's saying. He's not implying that. After all, there are degrees of sin and with that comes varying types of punishments depending on the gravity of the offense, right? That's true in the Old Testament law. It's true in the law of every civil society. Uh, if, If you break the speed limit on the freeway, you're not punished in the same way as you would be if you commit murder because they have two very different impacts, right? And so he's not implying that to have anger in your heart or hatred in your heart is the same thing as murder. But here's the thing, all sin is the same in the sense that it all separates us from God. It all interferes with our relationship with God. All sin, the the tiniest of sins to the biggest of sins in our eyes, all of that requires the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Every one. Every sin is first and foremost a grievance to the heart of God because uh, it offends him. But not all sin is the same in terms of consequences, either for the victim or for the uh, perpetrator. So Jesus is not trivializing murder here. He's not equating it with hatred. He is pointing out that hatred is the source of murder. The Jews had been taught that the solution of the problem of sin was to make more rules and inflict more punishments. We do the same thing in our society. And the the result is an enormously complex and often unjust legal system. And prisons that are overflowing with repeat offenders, right? So so I can make a harsh law and I can make a harsh punishment. How many years ago was it? Man, I'm getting off onto things that are not my expertise. How, How many years ago was it that in California somebody came up with this three strikes thing, right? And they said, right, if if we just make them afraid, we tell them, look, you you get three little things, it's going to add up to one big thing. Now I've never done any research or any study on that, but here's what I know: our jails are overflowing, our prisons are overflowing because we think that if we just go, hey, we're going to really be mad if you do this, that people will stop doing it. Or we think that if we just, I don't know, tell people, hey, come on, take it easy, that they won't do it. But the truth of the matter is, 
Every one of us is the same. Let me be very clear. I am not pointing the finger at those bad guys out there. I'm saying every single human being is in the same place. We have a deranged heart until Jesus Christ comes along and gives us new life. It's the only hope. The, the, The apostle Paul calls it depravity. He says, there is none who does good, no, not one. Now, and we go, well, I, I'm better than that guy. And God goes, you're not better than the standard. The standard is holiness. That's why Jesus, the Holy One, had to die on the cross to pay the price for our sin. He was the only one who could. He, and, and Jesus made it clear that the only solution to a sinful heart is to receive a new heart by the grace and forgiveness that can only be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So, if you're struggling with sin, if you're falling in the same traps again and again and again, and you're just weary, and you're just tired, the problem is not your surroundings. The problem is not that other guy who just keeps bugging you. The problem is your heart. The only lasting solution is a new heart. There's not a self-help book that can fix this. There's not any self-discipline that can fix this. In fact, anything with the word self in it cannot fix this. It's only the work of God that comes not by us somehow impressing him enough that he'll do it, but comes by us taking the hands off the reins of our own life, lifting our hands in surrender and saying, God, take me, I'm yours. And when we do that, he will give us a new heart. And you know, many of us have done that because we first came into a relationship with Jesus Christ that way. And we, and we recognize that we're sinners and we recognize that we're blowing in and we recognize that we can't fix it and we know that we don't deserve heaven apart from Jesus. So we've fallen on our knees and lifted our hands and said, God, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Come in and give me new life. And we're experiencing that new life. And we're shocked to find out that as long as we keep experiencing that new life on this old earth, we're still struggling with temptation. We're still falling in the holes. We're still having a hard time. Listen, you can have a new heart, but Jesus tells us that, that he will forgive our sins when we confess. In 1 John chapter 1, it says that if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is an ongoing process for all believers. We have to run to Jesus. We have to go, my heart, God, I need a new heart. We have to echo the words of, of David, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Every day of the week, every hour of the day, we need God's touch on our hearts. The main problem is not outward, it's inward. And the only lasting solution is God's changing in your heart. Get there through denial. And you can't get there through finger pointing. And you can't get there through blame shifting. You can't get there through any medication. You can't get there through any new habits. You can't get there through a whole library of self-help books. The only path to a new heart is the humble surrender to the only one who can give us a clean heart. 
David asked God for a new heart and God gave it to him. In many ways, it was the last chapter of David's life that is the most glorious after this point. And God stands ready to do the same for you and do the same for me on a daily basis. Will you let him? That's the question. Let's stand and we'll pray together. Our Father, we come before you so um, humbled in your presence, aware of our need for heart surgery and knowing that you're the only one that can do it. And so God, I pray you would help each one of us because in this room, there's hundreds of different challenges that we're facing, hundreds of different temptations that we're dealing with on a regular basis, hundreds of different stumbles and falls that we keep experiencing. But God, we know that only you can change our hearts. So we pray, Father, that our hearts would reflect the heart of God. We pray, Father, for an ongoing, regular cleansing. We pray that worship would be the center of our lives. We pray, God, that we would live our lives in full surrender to you, and that as we do, you would change our outward behavior so the world will see what you can do in a person's life and be drawn to you. Help us all, Father, to walk in that surrender. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.